Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4 verses 12 through 17 this morning. The last couple of weeks we have seen the battle that Jesus fought in the wilderness against the devil amidst the devil's temptation. He triumphed over the tempter. He remained obedient to God. And so he fulfilled the righteous requirements of God's law on our behalf. He did as we said, what the first man, Adam, failed to do when Adam faced temptation. Adam disobeyed God and brought us ruin. Jesus obeyed God and brings us redemption. Now, Matthew introduces us to the public ministry of Jesus, having or, or coming forth, uh, so to speak, uh, from victory, Over the enemy, Jesus now begins to free the captives of the kingdom of darkness. To bring them into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of light. And so let me invite you to consider how he does that. As Matthew shows us in Matthew chapter 4 verses 12 through 17. This is the word of God. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great Light, And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Amen. This is God's word. Let's ask him for his blessing. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a God who speaks and still speaks, and now grant that this word would encourage our hearts, enlighten our eyes uh, in the knowledge of Christ, help us to see him and his grace and his glory, draw us to him, so be our teacher and our savior, in his name we pray, amen. Matthew highlights in this passage three things. The timing of the ministry of Jesus, you see that in verse 12. The location or place of the ministry of Jesus, you see that in verses 13 to 16. And then the message of Jesus, verse 17. He gives you a summary statement of it. So let me think with you about the passage in those three parts. In the first place, the timing of it, and here I want you to see the bravery uh, of Jesus, the brave ministry of Jesus. The timing of it shows us this. Verse 12, now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Now, one of the best questions for Bible study to get at the meaning of the text is to ask, why is this here? 
right? Why is the author putting this here, here and now? Why does this come after what he's just said or before what he's about to say? Why does Matthew, in other words, put this material here immediately after the success of Jesus against the spiritual force of darkness, even the enemy, the tempter? Why does he now say this in verse 12? After all, there's a lot of other things he could say. Why do I say that? Well, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know that Matthew has skipped a whole lot of story at this point. For example, Luke tells us that, as Matthew does, that Jesus went up into Nazareth. But Luke tells you that he went into the synagogue in his hometown. Luke chapter 4, he gives you a lengthy account of Jesus as he went, uh, Sabbath by Sabbath, to meet with the people. He opened the scroll of Isaiah. Isaiah 61, this is in Luke 4, and he read these words there. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So he reads that and he rolls up the scroll and then Jesus says to the crowd, today this is fulfilled in your hearing, right? Matthew doesn't tell us any of that. Or take actually the Gospel of John. John, by some accounts, gives you nearly an entire year's worth of ministry that comes before where Matthew has skipped to. There's a whole uh, Judean and Galilean back and forth of Jesus while John is still out preaching in the wilderness before he's arrested. So, for instance, if you read the Gospel of John, John tells you about Jesus going up to Galilee, to Cana, to the wedding, and turning water into wine, performing a miracle. He also tells you that Jesus returns to Jerusalem for an early Passover, at which he drives the money changers out of the temple. John also tells you about his private meeting with Nicodemus, to enlighten this teacher in Israel about how ignorant he is, that we all have to be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus also then going back up, passes through Samaria, and he meets the woman at the well, a scandalous woman, and he shows her mercy. Now, there's a whole lot of traveling. There are many months at least involved in that. Matthew says nothing of those events at this point. He simply skips them. He skips ahead to when John is arrested. Now listen, understand, each gospel writer is selective in what he tells us about the ministry of Jesus. And there is space in verse 12 of Matthew for what Luke and John tell us. Jesus, he says, uh, withdrew into Galilee when he heard that John had been arrested. Those other events happened when John had not yet been arrested. There's space there. So just maybe as an aside in some way, as you think through Bible study, as you hear people talk about the Gospels, just don't let folks undermine your trust in the truthfulness of Scripture because one Gospel tells you stories that another Gospel writer doesn't tell you or because one Gospel puts those stories in a place in the story that another Gospel writer doesn't. Not every gospel was written to give you a chronological, sequential account 
of the events of the ministry of Jesus. In fact, Matthew is well known for gathering together five major discourses, uh, gathering together five major, major teachings of Jesus and chunking them up throughout his book, in part because Matthew is less interested in the chronology and the sequence of events. That doesn't mean everything's out of order. The end of the book ends with the crucifixion and resurrection. He makes no secret of that, though. Matthew doesn't. But it would confuse you if you didn't know that that's what's going on. Or it might bother you if you don't realize what he's doing. So, what is Matthew doing? And why do I say this speaks of the bravery of Jesus when it seems Jesus withdraws into Galilee when he finds out John is arrested? What does that mean? What's Matthew driving at? Well, he has a reason and purpose for telling you this. Who's John? Who arrested him? John was arrested by, as the other Gospels tell us, Herod the governor. Now, if you've been with us through the study of Matthew, this is actually the third Herod mentioned in the first four chapters of Matthew. We've already learned of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, who uh, was the one who was so threatened by the birth of the king of the Jews that the wise men told him about, that he had the children, the male children of Bethlehem, slaughtered, seeking to destroy this king of the Jews. Well, that Herod the Great has died. Herod, his son, Herod Archelaus, governed in Judea after that, but he didn't govern in Galilee. That's the Herod who is ruling in Judea when Mary and Joseph come back with Jesus from Egypt. You remember when they had, when they had fled for the safety of their infant child into Egypt, and then they came back out. Well, Herod Archelaus was reigning in Judea, and that's why it says they went north to Galilee. But that Herod didn't last long. The Romans removed him, and now this other son of Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, is in charge. He's ruling. And he is uh, a wicked man, like all the Herods were. He has taken a wife for himself from his brother, so Herodias, and John the Baptist actually uh, got under his skin, called him out, was eventually arrested, and eventually is executed. So John the Baptist was a, was a bold, daring, brave preacher of the gospel to this Herod. Now here's the point. You're waiting for this. Where does this Herod rule? He rules in Galilee. He's the Tetrarch, meaning he he governs a quarter. They split Herod the Great's kingdom into four parts. He got Galilee and Jesus withdraws where? Into Galilee. Do you see what's happening? Jesus isn't hiding. Jesus isn't, um, you know, shrinking back from the battlefield, having faced the enemy of our souls, and now he's afraid of some ruler or governor, persecutor, oppressor of God's people. Jesus isn't conceding the territory of Judea or Galilee to the enemy of our souls. No, Jesus fearlessly and in the face of government oppression and persecution and the arrest of John goes right into that man's rulership. 
And that's so different than so many of the kings of Israel. You remember, fairly recently we studied 1 Samuel and we studied the first human earthly king of Israel, Saul. Saul was anointed by Samuel as king. And at the moment of his public coming out, they sought to introduce Saul to the people as the king of Israel and they couldn't find him. And so then they had to search for him and they found him where? Hiding in the baggage. Saul, so much of his kingly rule was marked by timidity and hesitancy. He didn't run two battles. He ran from them. But not this king. Not the true king of Israel. He's fearless. And so he becomes the source of courage to his otherwise uncourageous people. In the uh, northern suburbs of Oxford, England, on October 16th, 1555, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley were burned at the stake for their Protestant beliefs. Ridley and Latimer were preachers of the gospel. They sought to reform the church according to the word of God. When Ridley was asked if he believed the Pope was heir to the authority of Peter as the foundation of the church, he replied that the church was not built on any man, but on the truth that Peter confessed that Christ was the Son of God, the foundation of the church. And so he would not honor the Pope in Rome since at that time the papacy was seeking, he said, its own glory and not the glory of God. Neither Ridley nor Latimer would accept the Roman Catholic Mass, as it was understood in that day, to be a sacrifice of Christ. Latimer told the commissioners who um, uh, interviewed him, he said, Christ made one offering and sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, and that was a perfect sacrifice. There doesn't need to be nor can there be any other propitiatory sacrifice. Do you understand that in, in, in the days of the early Reformation, I mean, the, the, that's lightning rod, right? This is dangerous stuff to say. And for that, they were held in the Tower of London for 18 months. And uh, eventually, these two Protestant bishops, or protesting anyway, Anglican bishops, whom bloody Queen Mary martyred, well, they were burned to death. Ridley was the first. They were burned together at the stake. And Ridley, it is said, said to his friend, Be of good heart, brother, for God will either assuage the fury of the flame or else strengthen us to abide it. And uh, then as the flames grew, Latimer had his turn and he said loudly so uh, Ridley behind him could hear, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley. And play the man, we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. They died, you might say, courageously. They died because they were in union and professed faith in the Jesus who is courageous in every and all circumstances. You and I may never be called to that sort of death on behalf of Jesus. 
not here if you live in the United States under most circumstances. But you are called to live for Jesus, to be a witness for Jesus. And if you're like me, you may feel at times like biting your tongue, keeping quiet, not making waves. We think of the Apostle Paul as... um, as strong, bold, daring, courageous. But Paul himself felt weak and was tempted to hold back. And that's why he prayed. He asked the Ephesians to pray for him, Ephesians 6, that he might boldly proclaim the gospel of God. Why would you ask anybody to pray that you would be bold unless you knew you needed divine help to do so? So likewise, you and I, we can ask Jesus for the boldness to witness for him in hard circumstances because Jesus knows just how to do that. He's brave and courageous in his public ministry. That's the first thing I want you to see. Now the second is I want you to see the expansiveness of the ministry of Jesus. You see that by the place he chooses, verses 13 to 16. Notice this place, it's described there, verse 13, leaving Nazareth, that's up in Galilee, that's the small town. He lived in Capernaum by the sea, that's still Galilee, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. We'll come back to that. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. What was that? Quoting Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. So Jesus goes up north to near the Dead Sea and the west side of it, that region in the area called here the Galilee of the Gentiles. Galil means circle or circuit. It probably refers to the 20 towns that King Solomon gave to King Hiram of Tyre, 1 Kings chapter 9. When Hiram had given him some materials for building, Solomon gave him these towns. Hiram came and saw the towns and wasn't very impressed by them actually. But there was a circuit of 20 towns at that time. There are many, many, many dozens more in the times of Jesus. But over time, that region becomes really important. The way of the sea is the highway from Damascus through Galilee all the way down into Egypt and Africa. And the road from the east or to the east from the west. My hand motions are going to be wrong directionally. The road east and west out into the frontiers to the east also passed through the region of Galilee. It was the crossroads uh, of the world. Traffic from everywhere passed through. There's even a saying about it. Judea is on the way to nowhere. Galilee is on the way to everywhere. And so, then, it was a place likely to be overrun by foreign armies. Anytime you wanted to go somewhere to fight somebody, you might pass through that region. And so it is that in the history of Israel, uh, this region where the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali were, those tribes that had been rebellious against the Lord, God gave them over to the Assyrian army in 722. They were overrun, and the Assyrians, part of their strategy of conquering a place, 
was to deport many of its people back into their empire and scatter them to the wind. And so actually the northern tribes disappear. And then to import others from their conquered nations back into the new conquered place. And so you had lots of people from all over the world brought to Galilee. And then over the course of time, now many hundreds of years later, at the time of Jesus, you have then living in Galilee a a population of Jews who remain faithful to God. A large population of Gentile pagans with all kinds of religious ideas from all over the world. And then you have people that had mixed together. They had intermarried together. And so their religious views had gotten all mixed up together. And so there's this large population of these various kinds of, many of them, religious and morally compromised people. Who are, as Isaiah puts it, dwelling in deep darkness. And this is the place Jesus goes to do his ministry. Matthew tells us it's here in fulfillment of prophecy that he goes to bring light into darkness, right? What's Matthew doing? He's showing you what Jesus really did, but he's highlighting the fact that this Jewish king who came to save his people came not just for the Jew, but for the Gentile. As Matthew will make that explicitly clear at the end of his book by noting Jesus himself said, go into all the world making disciples of all the nations. The gospel is for the Jew first, but also for the Gentile. Jesus then, you understand, is extending and expanding his kingdom by going there and preaching the good news. And inviting people to find rescue in him. And so it is that God's grace then is manifested sometimes in the most unlikely of places. My old pastor said, you know, if you and I had been drawing up a plan for Jesus' ministry, we probably would have said, Jesus, you need to go to Jerusalem. I mean, it's the capital city. It's the place of power and influence. It's where all the really important religious teachers are. It's where the high priest is. Jesus, I mean, make a beeline there. And preach the gospel. And you'll find rich people in the city. You'll find elite people in the city. Maybe we can gather a bunch of them together, really fund your ministry, and make this thing, you know, go boom. But Jesus goes to a backwater, a place that would have been considered like the country bumpkins to us, to the high and mighty in Jerusalem. Jesus doesn't go to the large. Uh, influential Jewish population, not immediately, not until the time is right for his execution, but he goes to a place, uh, an unlikely place, made up of unlikely people, of various uh, religious ideas and moral depravities, people who are lost and in darkness, to gather from every tribe and tongue and language and nation of people for himself. I was reading in the uh, recent edition of uh, the Network Magazine of Mission to the World, MTW. It's our, it's our PCA's denominational missions newsletter. Uh, we have about 600 families or so around the world serving in world mission. And they always have uh, some interesting snippets about what God is doing in the world. I read about Barbara Wright. Barbara is headed to Manchester, England to serve as a missionary. Um, She's going to go uh, alongside uh, 
City Church in Manchester to help disciple the women of the church in Manchester, England. Now, Barbara is the first African-American woman in a long time to serve with Mission to the World. She's an older woman. She's got 26 years of Bible study fellowship teaching. She was a teacher in it under her belt. She spent 10 years in Tallahassee in the capital uh, leading a a ministry, a Bible study ministry for the wives of legislators over the course of a decade. And now the Lord has her going cross-culturally across the pond in her, the article didn't say, but to look at her and to know her history in her probably late 50s, early 60s, to go serve in Manchester. She grew up here in the States. Her father was nearly killed by the KKK. Uh, But she's going now to this large, diverse international city. City Church Manchester is a congregation of about 150 members with 47 different nationalities represented by them. Most of the congregation is young and under 45, so she stepped into it and she said, I think I can help love people here and help teach people here. I think I can disciple women here. She says there's so much diversity, so much culture. When I go to the marketplace here, there's all sorts of people here. And I think these people need to know Christ. And God has placed them here. And God has placed me here. God is interested in all the kingdoms of this world, that the peoples of this world might become the kingdom of his beloved son. And so Jesus goes to the backwater To expand that kingdom, let me ask you about you. Are there people you think who are beyond the gospel? Are there people in your life, maybe family, relatives, maybe some you're about to see at Thanksgiving, who you've just written off? You think there's no way they would be interested. They have these wacky religious beliefs, or they're just so far gone morally, they have no interest whatsoever. Don't Don't you remember that Jesus said the prostitutes are coming into the kingdom ahead of the Pharisees. The Pharisees are self-righteous and they think they've got their act together. They're not interested in a savior, but the prostitute at least knows she's messed up. She's open to a savior. I wonder if you'll look at your family that way when you visit with them. It'll be easy to sit next to the properly dressed you know, sound speaking, kind hearted, moral pagan in your family. But it might be really hard to talk to that uncle nobody wants to talk to, right? The black sheep sibling in the family. But maybe that is just the person God might have you go to. It's the kind of people Jesus went to. Or let me ask you, what nations have you written off? In your own heart and mind and prayers, because you've said to yourself, oh, that's a, that's a Muslim nation, or that's a Buddhist nation, or that's a Hindu nation, or, or the government of that nation, they're, you know, they're dangerous to the church, they're persecutors of the church. And you've just simply said, uh-uh. Maybe those are the exact places where the light of the gospel is needed. And perhaps some of you might be called to take the gospel to those hard places. And for some of you, those hard places may just be here. 
America is, because of the size of our population, the fourth largest unreached nation in the world and the largest English-speaking unreached nation in the world. Approximately 75% of our neighbors across America, it may not be quite that large in Siloam, approximately three and four no longer attend church or have never attended church, Christian church. They've either never been exposed to the gospel and been part of the community of Christ, or they've, they've dropped out. They're backing away. They're, they're walking away. God can use you right here amidst our friends and neighbors, even your enemies, to share the great joy that is for all peoples. Because Jesus is expanding his kingdom. And now there's a third and final thing, and it's the message of that kingdom you see, and it's a familiar message. Notice verse 17, Jesus from that time began to preach saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now I say that's familiar. It is if you've been reading along in Matthew, it is the identical expression that John the Baptist used in chapter 3, verse 2. When Matthew wanted to summarize the preaching of John the Baptist, it was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. These same words. In other words, Jesus comes preaching, and the message he preached encapsulated is identical to the message that John the Baptist preached. Jesus tells us that John was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. And he preached the same message that Jesus preached. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And by preaching that same message, the Lord Jesus is teaching us that the gospel is the same in all eras. The gospel in the old covenant is the same gospel of salvation through the coming Messiah King as the gospel of the New Testament in the coming of the Messiah King. The message of Jesus and the message of John are the same. This, these words ought to have been familiar to you. Now don't balk at them because it starts with repent. Though I think we hear that word and we want to run and hide because we're not so great at repenting ourselves and it seems maybe harsh to us as a word, but it's not. It's an invitation and certainly our culture misunderstands it and is offended by the language. But, but you understand what's being preached here. I mean, it's a summary statement, of course. But whatever else you add to the summary statement, however you fill it out, and there's much more to be said, right? The, the core, the heart of it must include the summary statement. And the summary statement is what? What's the good news? The good news is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God's promised King Messiah is here in Jesus and he has come to save his people. He has come to rescue us out of the kingdom of darkness and bring us into the kingdom of light. It doesn't tell you not there how he'll do that by his death and resurrection. But the king has come and he is on that mission. What's the right way to respond to this king? And especially now that he's raised, it is to repent 
And when we studied this, when we looked at John the Baptist and the language of that, it means to turn back. Turn back. Turn away from your sinful path of walking away from God. Turn away from your self-righteousness that says, I don't need God. And turn back to Jesus and say, I need this Savior. Own your sins. Own your self-righteousness. Admit not only that you've done wrong, but that you are wrong. And you need to be rescued from you. (laughs) And Jesus can rescue you from you. That repentance, and it's two sides of the same coin, faith and repentance. That faith and repentance is not sinlessly perfected in anybody in this life. None of us has done this perfectly well. But it's not the perfection of it that saves us. It's the perfection of the Savior who saves us. And so sin still continues in the hearts and lives of people who are truly believing and repenting. I've told you the story before about the farmer who had a really terrible temper. And he would take it out on his domestic animals and beat them. He took it out on his wife and his children. And they, they feared and shrunk from him. And he heard the preaching of the gospel as an older man. He was brought to faith in Christ. And then he was crushed by the realization of, of, who, of his own sin. And he came to faith in Christ. And three weeks after his conversion, he was working in the fields. A field hand made a mistake. An animal slipped and his temper exploded. (laughs) And he exploded with the same language and the same kind of intensity that he had done before. And then he suddenly stopped. And he exploded a second time, but this time into tears. And he ran into the farmhouse and he threw himself on the table while his wife was there in the kitchen making a meal. And and he just lamented and weeping and having sobs. And she said to him, darling, what's the matter? And he said through his tears, I'm not any different than I was before. And she said to him, my husband, there is all the difference in the world in you. You never repented of your sin before now. You were never broken by your sinfulness before now. I see a change in your heart towards this behavior and towards this attitude. And there is all the difference in the world in you, my husband. He wasn't in three weeks' time perfectly, sinlessly, instantaneously changed. He was genuinely and in principle changed and it worked itself out over time as it does for all of us until we get to heaven. Let me ask you, has your attitude changed towards Christ, towards yourself? Do you see your sinfulness and grieve it? Have you quit telling yourself that you're a good person and you just made a few mistakes along the way? Or have you started telling yourself that the problem with you is you? And have you started realizing that your only hope of refuge is in the forgiving love of the Heavenly Father expressed through the generosity of the gift of His own Son who died for our sins? And when you see much weakness in your faith and repentance, then you and I as we see those things, need to learn to sing, not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal 
no respite, no. Could my tears forever flow, tears of repentance, all for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. For all who come to him, he does. And so Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's good news. You're invited to trust in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you. You're kind and open-handed and patient, long-suffering. And uh, you know all the turmoil of our own hearts. Grant that we who have gone astray would be brought near to you through the blood of your Son, our Savior. In his name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.